Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello. Welcome to Warzone Live with me, Paul Moore, at HuffPost. Uh, we're delighted at this Tory party conference to have as our special guest, Matt Hancock, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care. I'm going to ask him quite a few questions, but hopefully we'll have some time at the end of that to wind it out to the audience. So without further ado, Matt, um, you've got quite a big announcement today, um, unlike quite a lot of ministers at, the, at this conference. I mean, you, you've got a massive amount of money to announce. 2.3 billion for six hospitals over five years. You've got 100 million in seed funding for 34 more, possibly a dozen rural hospitals. How many brand new hospital buildings are actually going to be built from this as opposed to refurbs? Well, there's 40 new hospital projects that we're announcing today. Projects, not hospitals. Um, yes, in, in they're, they're large and small, as you say. So, for instance, um, we are uh, giving the go-ahead to a new Adambrooks in Cambridge. The new Adambrooks <coughs> will be one of the f best research hospitals in the world. It's in a 1960s building at the moment. Uh, and that needs to be replaced with a modern uh, cutting-edge building. Then take a hospital like Whips Cross in London. Um, it is, that is also very old, completely out of date, um, and that needs replacing um, on the same site. There they have done some replacement of a small part of it, but obviously we'll be replacing um, the rest. Uh, and then some of them, as you say, are community hospitals, because, you know, in the past, over a generation or so, there's been this drive to remove, to move services from community hospitals into the big city hospitals. Um, but I think that's wrong, because people want to be treated close to home. Now, of course, if you want a really complicated treatment, you want the cutting-edge uh, ser service, um, if you want a... Uh, a heart transplant, then you want to be in one of the biggest and best hospitals um, that there is. But if you have s uh, something that can be treated closer to home, uh, that's far better. So it is, a, it is a range of different types of projects. I've just been at the North Manchester Hospital, uh, which is getting the seed funding. They're very excited about it. They have an eight-year programme. So if we gave them the money to rebuild it now, they wouldn't be able to spend it. Um, but we're giving them the money to prepare the plan and giving them the go-ahead um, for the new hospital. That hospital currently is still in the old 1870s workhouse. It's in the buildings that were the, actually the workhouse, and, uh, and um, I've just been round it with Boris. It clearly needs uh, doing up the boarded-up windows, and uh, it, uh, so they will get a brand-new hospital. So to what extent, though, is this jam tomorrow? I mean, NHS providers, who are the... the you know, the people within the industry who know how to, who have to deliver this stuff. They've yeah. said today's announcement is significant, yeah. but, there's a big but, they'd said you need to double your capital spending from six billion a year to 12 billion a year just to repair all those crumbling buildings that have been neglected in the last decade. Well, absolutely, right? absolutely, this is on top of the existing capital programme, which is actually seven billion this year because we added a billion to it over the summer. <laughs> Um, and so this is in addition uh, to that. Um, we haven't done the full capital settlement that'll pay uh, for the um, for the day-to-day -day capital expenditure that you need. Um, that will come in the capital review, which the Treasury um, are planning. So this is, but this is in addition to the seven billion a year that we spend in the NHS on capital. So I totally accept the point that it's great news for the 40 hospitals, um, and it is um, especially for the six in wave one who are getting the 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 the, the money right now. Um, but the other thing that the NHS providers have said to me, and I've heard so many times, is, you know. Hospital building in this country has been very stop-start, and so much of it has been based on PFI. And the PF, if you get a PFI hospital, you know they, they rebuilt hospitals according to which one could get the PFI contract. The PFI contract then hamstrings the hospital financially for years ahead. It also means that you can't then flex what services might be needed. 
often over a 30-year period. And instead of that, we, we are, one of the things that the providers were saying, the NHS were saying, was give us the, the seed funding and the early go-ahead so that we can do the work so, and then we know that we can rebuild the hospital Are in the future. Are you going to do it without PFI then? All of this is without PFI, on balance sheet, straightforward taxpayers' money, which we can afford because the economy is going strong. And, the, and, and so I've had this, there have been questions today, oh, this is only six are getting the full funding. But the others are getting the go-ahead and they're getting the funding to make the plan. They don't have the plans yet in, in many cases. And so we are bringing in exactly the more strategic, long-term approach that people want. And then I've had this accusation, I've had this, this, this people saying, but if you don't win the election, then you can't guarantee these hospitals are going to be built. And I'm absolutely shocked that John Ashworth, my opposite number in Labour, has already come out against one of these hospitals. So if the Labour Party are going to say that they won't build these hospitals, then I'd like them to say it now, because I think that should be brought attention, to the attention of voters, don't you? And, and if people are saying that these hospitals might not be built because the Conservatives might not win the election, well, that is a message I'd be very happy to take to the country. Well, speaking of the politics of it, um, I looked at the list. There's Derryford in Plymouth, Labour Tory marginal. New Hospital in North Devon, where the Lib Dems are on the rise. Queen Alexander, uh, Rob Halfin in Harlow, former Labour Tory marginal. Whips Cross, Ian Duncan Smith's got a tight majority. Isn't it true that maybe some of this is just about winning votes in those particular constituencies? No. Um, that we're rebuilding the Queen's Medical Centre in the middle of Nottingham. I'm building a 450 million new hospital in the Shadow Secretary of State's constituency. So I think it's pretty unreasonable to, uh, to make that a political argument. It's about where people need new hospitals. And, you know, if you're sitting in Whips Cross, this is, it is, it's too small. Um, it's very hard to give modern care because of the, way, uh, because of the layout. The, the, the roof is leaking. This hospital needs to be rebuilt, and rebuild it we will. And when the Prime Minister visited Whips Cross, yeah. in Alexandra Hospital, yeah. you already knew this money was coming, didn't he? And that's why you went there, for some nice photo ops to go back to? Well, we've been working on this for uh, a while, and I'm absolutely delighted that I got the backing of Boris to, uh, uh, to deliver. And in terms of that capital from the Chancellor, you're confident you're going to be able to increase the capital per year for the NHS? Well, we've announced that this morning. No, beyond what's already been announced. Well, we'll have that debate in the spending review. Okay. But, you know, uh, the thing is, I've got absolute rock-solid support from the Prime Minister for what I've needed to do, and it's been that's been absolutely brilliant. You know, in, 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 earlier this year, we announced the 33.9 billion extra funding. Uh, for the day-to-day -day running costs of the NHS over the next five years. And then since then, I've been trying to get the, the capital, that's the day-to-day -day running costs. I've, since then, I've been trying to get the capital money allocated, uh, the infrastructure money, um, and I couldn't, and I couldn't, and I couldn't. And then Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, and now we're off to the races. When it comes to another key bit of NHS policy um, that's caused concern recently, vaccination is huge in the news. Now, the UK recently lost its measles-free status, as you're more than aware, and MMR, uh, as immunisation's gone down. But it's not just MMR. There's diphtheria, there's meningitis, the take-up rates have gone down. Pregnant women are increasingly questioning whether they're having the flu vaccine or the whooping cough vaccine. There's a new HPV vaccine, which you're going to introduce in secondary schools for boys as well as girls. Yep. And yet, in various places, not just in London, but particularly in London, yeah. um, parents are saying, why should we do this? I mean, particularly on HPV, in the last week, parents in a school in London have been asking, why is the school just asked my permission for this new vaccine? They haven't given me any information as to why it's needed. All they've asked me for is permission. Right. There's no information. What's the roots of this crisis, and what are you going to do about it? Well, I, I'm very worried about falling rates of vaccination, especially for measles. Um, and um, uh, actually for flu vaccination rates are rising but we've put a huge effort in the last five years into raising vaccination rates for flu. For measles um, the, it, the falling vaccination rates are a serious problem and it's unbelievable that I think that uh, Britain has lost its measles free status and it should be a real wake-up call. Um, I, I think that the social media companies have got a lot to answer for because they allow the spread of anti-vaccine messages. 
Um, and I will do whatever I can. I mean, the science is absolutely clear and settled on the importance of vaccination. And the worst thing is that if you don't vaccinate your child, and you can, then the person you're putting at risk is not only your own child, but it's also the child who can't be vaccinated for medical reasons. Maybe they've got cancer, and so their immune system is too weak. And they are losing the what's called, um, it, it, what's called in the parlance, the herd immunity that you get from when over 95% of people are vaccinated. So I think it is totally, um, it, it's a, it, we need a massive drive to get these vaccination rates back up. But there's a challenge here as well, which is that even with the falls in the last couple of years, um, still only over 90% of children do get vaccinated. So I don't want the debate to put people off because there is absolute clarity on what the science says and what the right thing is to do. Now, you've talked about being bold on this. Um, to what extent would you think making vaccination compulsory in some way or other would be a good idea to at least to look at? There are American states like California have just passed legislation which suggests that you can't send your child to a public school um, in the United States unless they've been vaccinated. Do you want to at least look at that and see what the legality of that is? Well, I've said before that we should be open-minded, and frankly what I'd say is that um, when we, uh, the state, provide services to people, then it's a two-way street. You've got to take your responsibilities too. So I think there's a very strong argument for having compulsory vaccinations for children for when they go to school, uh, because otherwise they're putting other children at risk. Now. You've got to make sure the system would work because some children can't be vaccinated and some may hold very strong um, religious convictions that you want to take into account. But frankly, the proportion of people in either of those two categories is tiny compared to the um, 7 or 8% now who don't get vaccinated. Um, and then I'd want to make it very easy when the children, if the children do arrive at school not vaccinated simply to get vaccinated. Uh, and make it the norm. But I think there's a very strong argument for moving to compulsory vaccination, and I think that the public would back us. And you'll, you'll take some legal advice on that? Or well, I'm, I've, I've um, actually um, I've received um, advice inside government this week on how we might go about it, and I'm looking very seriously at it. Right. Um, another area that actually was uh, that impinged on the whole idea of vaccination rates was public health cuts. To what extent was it a mistake hiving off responsibility for public health to local authorities, oh, which, which themselves mm. suffered lots of cuts. I don't think that was a mistake at all. Um, we, and in fact, we, we, earlier this year we looked at whether it had worked and the extent to which it had worked. And I think that, public, uh, that local authorities are doing a good job with their public health responsibilities. It's now five years since the, the responsibilities were moved over. And the reason is this that it's really easy to look at public health and look at it through the lens of the public health budget, right? Billions of pounds every year, the public health budget we give the local authorities to spend on public health. But public health isn't just the public health budget. Public health is what do we do as a society to keep ourselves healthy? And this is the really big question in health. Uh, you know, today we've been talking about building hospitals, but the really big long-term question in health is how do we talk not just about the rights that we get from the NHS to be treated free at the point of use and according to need not ability to pay, both principles which I strongly defend, but how do we make sure that society does more and takes more responsibility for their own health? How do you make it easier to look after your own health? Um, how do we make sure people can um, you know, cook for themselves, eat properly, uh, and, um, and, and get the right nutrition? Um, how do we make sure that people can stay fit and stay out of hospital? How do we make sure that you know, people get the right equipment to be able to stay in their own homes in have, instead of having to go into a home? How do you reduce the number of falls that older people have by taking preventative uh, measures? Um, this whole prevention agenda is incredibly important. And frankly, when the increase in the number of people turning up at A&E is going up by 6% a year. That is unsustainable. It's unsustainable. We've so got to get ahead of the curve. Why are they turning up at A&E? 
Because and how can you change it other than having public information campaigns? Well, and, 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 the, and the whole prevention agenda. It's the only way that you can make the NHS sustainable in the long term. And, and come back to your original question on this, local authorities are so important in that. Not just the narrow public health uh, budget, but how they build houses, where they put parks and recreation. The, you know, how the local environment is, especially air pollution, which is the second biggest public health um, uh, problem and biggest for children. All of these wider issues that impinge on your health are public health matters. Um, and so it's very important that councils are actively engaged in that. Would you like to see stronger rules then on air pollution? For example, when a new school, is, the people are thinking of building a new school that's got to be away from a particular <coughs> area, or even cut one school, I think, in, in the Midlands, has moved away from a, a busy road and rebuilt somewhere else. Do you want to see really? more of that and new, yes. new guidelines on yes. that? Yes. Mm, okay. Yes, I'd, I'd better tell Theresa Villas. <laughs> um, when, when Michael Gove was um, uh, um, Environment Secretary, I did, we did uh, loads of joint work ahead of the recent air pollution plan that came out this spring. Um, and we launched it together. And the reason we launched it together is, although it's obviously DEFRA policy, it is, um, it is it, the main motivation is that it's a, a health issue as well. Poor air quality is a, is a, is a, is a health issue and we need to tackle it. Now, it turns out that actually overall our air quality has increased over the last generation. It has improved. But so too has our understanding of how important air quality is to our health and the impact it can have particularly on children. And, you know, I used to live uh, next to a very, very busy, um, busy road and um, uh, that's where my kids were born and uh, and and the uh, uh, brought up in the early years and I just didn't understand and I don't think we as a society understood the full impact that poor air quality has and you know I used to go to my front door and um, it had just become blackened over a couple of mm -hmm. weeks and then you clean the sort of white painted linton and then a couple of weeks later it would be black again with this sort of little specks and I look back on it now with horror that this is the air that my children were breathing um, and um, we moved and now we don't live near a, ha a big road and that um, and, and, and the physical environment is just much better and I wish I'd known when I became a father the impact that air pollution had on has on the health of children and I think we would have moved, moved away a lot earlier. And for those who can't afford to move away. Yeah. So, uh, air pollution, of course, in tackling public health um, and improving the health of the nation, you've got to think about the NHS and the essentially responsive service, making sure that it's always there for you when you've got a problem. You've got to think about the things that individuals can do and take responsibility for, right? Like the amount of exercise we take is not something that the state uh, can very easily get involved in, although I recommend taking the stairs, uh, not the lift. Um, and, um, uh, but then there's the things that no one individual can control on their own, like air pollution, and we've got to tackle those as well. Right. The wider public health issue of um, obesity is mm. obviously big on your agenda. Mm. The sugar tax. Yes. Now, the PM's talked, uh, certainly in the leadership campaign, about reviewing so-called sin taxes, mm. reviewing them, mm. uh, and basing the, the review on evidence. Yes. Now, given the sugar tax seems to have an evidence base. Yes. It's got an evidence base that yes, shows it's that's been, an understatement. been working. Yes. Are you ready to sort of push hard again on that and maybe yes, expand and it? Yes. And what, what is the evidence? Um, a couple of weeks ago we published uh, the evidence, Public Health England published the uh, review that it had been doing into the impact of the sugar tax and the evidence is really uh, terrific. The, um, the, the, the amount of sugar in your average sugary drink has fallen by 28% since we brought in the uh, soft drinks industry levy, it's called the sugar tax. Um, and um, that, is, that comes straight out of people's diets. And almost all of the impact and the change has been from companies reformulating their drinks rather than consumers switching. And that is, a, that is great because it means that everybody's diet is being improved. You know, these sugary drinks, they're not good for you. And people just don't understand um, the negative impact that they can have. Um, now, I'm, 
and, and then I, un I do understand the people who say, but hold on, um, you know, the society, it's up to individuals. Now, so I'm not proposing that we uh, that we'd ban sugary drinks, but we've got to tax something. So taxing things that are actively bad for you and drive up my costs in the NHS, let's tax those things instead of taxing good things like the amount of work that people do, do uh, through income tax. So um, I think that you know, the long tradition in the Conservative Party of understanding the incentive effects of taxation, which is at the heart of the uh, economic analysis around the Laffer curve and all of that, um, that is, we instinctively understand that as a party, and we should understand that, therefore, let's levy taxes on things that are actively uh, bad, change, and, and, and if that has an impact on people's behaviour, um, that's a good thing. And, and in many countries this happens, this incentive comes through, where they don't have an NHS, it comes through the private insurance of healthcare providers, who say you've got, in the same way that if you drive, they say you've got to behave in a certain way and in return we'll insure you, and if you don't behave that way we won't insure you. Well, the same, the private healthcare companies do this in other countries where they say, um, we expect a certain amount of behaviour, you've got to turn up for an annual check, etc., etc., and that is part of the deal. Well, in this country we have a deal, and the deal is, um, I will pay for your healthcare, in the, not with my personal money, but, the, uh, <laughs> but I will allocate taxpayers' money, uh, all your money, uh, to pay for your healthcare. We do that uh, collaboratively. And I think in return, people need to take responsibility, and it's reasonable for us to use other parts of government policy to help reduce the costs on the NHS. But you mentioned Public Health England and their report, and that showed that sugar intake had increased in the last three years overall. Now, overall, and the reason for that is because some manufacturers have actually increased the amount of sugar in sweets, for example, and in puddings and things like that. And so overall, it's You've gone up. You've read the report. It's gone up. So it's what are you going to do about that? Like a, so it's gone up about 3%, yeah. and then in sugar drinks, it's come down by 28%. Yeah, yeah. And that just demonstrates the impact but of these But does it demonstrate the case for extending it to, to, well, we're going to, to not drink? We're going to have a review and consider whether to extend it next year, yeah. And you would base that? Your, whatever your decision you base on. We'll base the review on evidence, and you can probably see from the tone that I'm taking um, uh, where my voice will be in that argument. Okay. Um, cigarettes. Now, the Treasury recently put out an advert about the return of duty-free alcohol and cigarettes coming from, back from EU countries. Um, now, I imagine you'll be relaxed about alcohol, but when it comes to smoking... All in, consider in, uh, in good measure. Yeah, but, 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 true, but in smoking, you've got a target. Eradicating well, all smoking yes. by 2030. I do think the two are very different. Yeah. So, with alcohol, um, clearly, for some people, our, our, their alcohol intake is a serious health problem. Uh, we think that's true for about 5% of drinkers. Um, and for them, you need targeted intervention when they're in hospital because of their alcohol problem. You need psychological support and you need them to help them essentially stop being effectively alcoholics, whether they're technically alcoholic or not. Uh, but for the large, vast majority of those of us who enjoy the odd drink, and here we are at Conservative Party conference, um, the, um, uh, the, it, is, it, is, it is our own personal responsibility, and we use the tax system to disincentivize um, too much uh, drinking. Um, but for cigarettes, uh, you know, we, do, we have a goal of a smoke-free society by 2030. And um, we, uh, we should be pursuing that goal with vigour. What does that mean about that Treasury ad, then? Well, as I said, I mean, it, it came out on the day that I was speaking at the Public Health England annual conference, so the timing wasn't exactly helpful. Um, and um, I didn't, you know, I didn't, because tax matters are a matter for the Treasury, I didn't know about it in advance. Um, the other issue that you've been pushing is energy drinks, um, and that, you know... I haven't been pushing energy drinks. Well, you know what I mean? They're a bad, <laughs> a bad, a bad they are for kids. For children. Yeah, so for children. Is, so for energy things. drinks, energy drinks, a bit like alcohol for adults, perfectly reasonable for yeah. people to drink energy drinks, it's entirely up to you. I think they generally taste disgusting, but that's a matter of personal taste, and I also think that baked beans are disgusting. I'm not going to argue against baked beans. Um, <laughs> Good. Uh, I'm glad we cleared that up. That wasn't in the question, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. Uh, but the but for under six, but for under eight, for children, um, you know, caffeine, highly caffeinated drinks with huge amounts of sugar as well. Uh, you, it's perfectly reasonable for us to treat children differently in the same way that you can't smoke legally under the age of 
18 as well. Uh, we've got a consultation out. We'll be responding to it uh, shortly in the coming few weeks. Uh, but You're uh, confident that's going to go ahead, though? Well, I don't want to prejudge the response to the consultation. <laughs> <laughs> but um, just on that, given that we are at a Conservative Party conference, you mentioned the whole issue of personal freedom, which is obviously a key conservative value. Yeah. yeah. When it came to the energy drinks, yeah. um, your department actually raised the idea of using anti-terror laws to police the energy drinks ban on, on children. I mean, it's now been... Uh, yes, I'm ruled by the Home Office. I mean, what was going on there? It sounded uh, rather nanny state. No, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure that was at, uh, ever the formal proposal, um, and um, uh, I don't. I think that's been slightly. Uh, I saw the headline in one of the newspapers, but I think it was slightly misunderstood. Um, the um, uh, but there is a. I think there is this distinction between how we think about on the on the personal freedom argument on how we think about children and how we think about adults. And I'd also, I want to shift the debate around public health also in this way, which is that, you know, in the past, too often, the policy levers that people reach for are things that affect everybody, whereas actually, especially in the modern world with all the data that we have um, uh, and that people have about their own lifestyles, um, we can be much better targeted, like the approach I was talking about with respect to alcohol. So, for instance, I'm against a minimum unit price of alcohol because the most people who pay the price for that are people who drink perfectly responsibly. Um, I'd far rather be targeting the efforts that we need. And, of course, alcohol is illegal for children. And there's no evidence, obviously, that doing that would help alcoholics at any sort of minimum price. Exactly. Right. Um, Wider NHS policy. Now, in the past, Linton Crosby used to advise David Cameron and Theresa May, just keep it quiet on the NHS yeah. during the election campaign. Yeah. Here we are. We're not keeping it quiet on the NHS. You're well, we're not yet campaign. in an election campaign. Well, we are, despite, really, aren't we? Let's be honest. Despite the fact I'd like to be. Involved. But we are. Um, and Jeremy Hunt in the past was sort of slightly sidelined and, you know, kept quiet during an election campaign. You're going to obviously be very, very vocal in an election well, campaign. Well, I hope so. Now, I, mean, I is, love is the NHS. Because? It's fantastic. It's, it's because we love it. And Boris and I are completely aligned on this. We, we value it. We love what it does. I think the NHS is essentially patriotic because it's, we look out for each other in this country, right? And um, we, it, it's something that we as a whole society do. We pay our taxes and we get free care. And I think that is a proper... Uh, conservative principle, conservative value. So uh, we'll, we'll keep backing yeah, the NHS. But I'm intrigued by it. Is, is this because you've seen some sort of internal polling or even focus grouping which shows that you're ahead on the NHS now for the first time? Well, we should be. The Labour Party of today come out against some of our 40 new hospitals. It's a, 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 no wonder we're more trusted on the NHS. But that's second order. The most important thing is that um, you know the NHS has been there for me. Um, it's been there for my... Uh, close family. It's been there for my um, my sister two years ago. Had a bad accident, hit her head very hard, um, and she was taken by air ambulance to um, Southmead Hospital in Bristol, and she nearly died. And she was in for over a week in intensive care, and they had to drill a hole in her head, and it was just horrific. And and they saved her life. And everybody in this room will have an example of a time when the NHS has been there for them. You know, in some cases, some of the worst moments in our lives, right? Um, and in some cases, joyously, the best moments in our lives. And this emotional connection is important. And people see the NHS as a sort of uh, a political thing. And they see it, in the past, people have seen it as a thing that the Labour Party supports. My God, this is a... It's a it's, it's, it's where our country comes together. And if you believe in your country and, and, and then believing that everybody, everybody should have access to that life-saving treatment in the same way that my family have had access to that life-saving treatment, it really, really matters. Can I ask you a little bit about um, Brexit? Now, obviously, Brexit is important to the NHS. Oh, well, we were going so well. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Surrender Bill, now, as you've called it, um, you've said that's a literal statement yeah. of fact. Now, can I just press you on that? Who is surrendering to whom in the Surrender Bill? The UK government, because of the Bill Act now, has surrendered negotiating power to the European Union. That is, that is a matter of fact. 
and it's perfectly reasonable to use uh, metaphors like um, surrender that I think in this case is factual rather than uh, But it's not factual, is it? Because what's it actually is, happening... We have is surrendered it, is negotiating power. All that's been surrendered is the Prime Minister's unfettered power to decide no, what's happening in Brussels. No. And he's surrendering to the Commons, no. not to the EU, no. his power to do that. No, that he, okay? it surrenders to the EU negotiating power. Because the argument... Have you read the Act? Of course, and I know exactly it's got what a it clause does. which suggests and makes clear that actually if MPs disagree with that extension, they can vote on it. Well, so it, their power rests with the Parliamentary House of Commons it, in the UK. It, it surrenders power in the negotiation to the EU because instead of saying, if you don't give us a good deal, then we are going to leave anyway unambiguously with no deal, it brings in a, quite an, a, a matter of ambiguity into that. And that undermines the negotiating position. Do you accept that MPs have the final say? Well, uh, I, I accept the law, I, I, and I think that as Conservatives, belief in the rule of law is important. That doesn't mean that you, um, you don't challenge the law uh, sometimes, and um, you do what you think is right within the law and within the legal advice that you get, um, and sometimes you get challenged on it. I found this whole... Um, what is the legal advice on the Ben Act, then? Well, I haven't, as it happens, I haven't seen any, because I'm concentrating on running the NHS instead of being questioned constantly about Brexit. <laughs> but, the, um, um, but, there's a, uh, uh, but the point is that it, it absolutely is a surrender, and it's perfectly reasonable, even if it wasn't literal, it would be reasonable to use it as a metaphor. Um, what, it, what is not acceptable is threats of physical violence against public figures, people in public debate. Um, and, um, frankly, we see far, far more of that coming from the other side. That doesn't mean it's right from either side, uh, but we, we, it's, just, it's, just all, it's just a matter of... That is a matter of fact that we have seen far more of that coming from the other side. But I, that doesn't yeah. defend it, yeah. it at all from anybody. Um, but it is perfectly reasonable to use... Um, uh, to use metaphors in public debate. We, it, that's been true from the age of uh, dot. I was going to ask you about that, that abuse that um, Conservatives have received. You might well see a lot of it this week in, in the demonstrations and Yeah, and I understand protests. there's a banner across a bridge that is essentially calling for the murder of uh, Conservatives. I yeah. think this is totally outrageous. Well, I was going to ask you a little bit about that. The, does, should Labour be doing a bit more about calling that out? In the fact well, they should stop doing it in yeah. the first instance, and I hope that they will. But there's been this whole culture. Do you think it stems from the fact that Labour originally would always say, for example, Conservatives are, quotes, uncaring? Yeah, I and think that, that bleeds into them being heartless, and yes. that bleeds into them being evil, and then Tory scum. I think it's so you can see the pattern, but it's as if it's not stopped early on. It's a particularly, it's a particularly the hard left in the Labour Party, um, and out with the Labour Party, it, who, who believe that unless you agree with their version of a model society, you must be not just wrong, but evil. And I think, I believe in a pluralistic uh, public debate. I always try to use reasonable language. I know that I've occasionally uh, strained into You've it. You swore to me in the past. I, I, it wasn't swearing, swearing no. at you. I was swearing about... I, I was you being said, let's get shit done. <laughs> I was being emphatic about um, how enthusiastic I was to make progress on things like uh, the NHS and Brexit. And, and um, so, so we're all, you know, not, none of us is perfect. Uh, but the... Um, but I've always tried to be reasonable and always tried to respect the arguments of people who I disagree with. Uh, and that is true. Like, for instance, John Ashworth. Take John Ashworth, my opposite number. You know, he was brought into politics by Peter Mandelson. He's a true Blairite, very moderate. I really like him. I'm probably... <laughs> Killed his courageous then. Well, <laughs> um, I would say uh, maybe damaged his career, because uh, can you use kill as a metaphor in politics? I don't know. The, um, um, oh, very good. Uh, the, um, I, uh, and kill is definitely stronger than surrender, but I'm not going to go there. Um, the... the um, uh, yeah, where was I? Oh yes, John Ashworth, totally wonderful man, lovely, really, really nice, really quite right wing for the Labour Party, uh, and uh, I don't think he agrees with Jeremy Corbyn on much. Um, and um, did I mention how much I liked him? Um, and um, the the thing about him is, I disagree with his opposition to building a massive, great, fantastic new state-of-the-art hospital in Leicester. You know, I think we should be building the hospital in Leicester that he's opposed to that I announced this morning. Um, he disagrees with me, but I respect 
him for that. I, I, can't, un I can't understand the decision uh, to oppose the new hospitals from the Labour Party, but I, but I respect him as a person. Okay, and 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 I wish we could have more politics that is that is um, that is respectful. That other people have views that, and sometimes you can get good ideas from the other side, and sometimes you can come to a consensus across the house. Um, and uh, like we did on Friday when we announced the new scanners, and at least the Labour Party uh, uh, welcomed those. So um, have you have you stopped swearing as much now? Because you did say F, F business. You did say, I'm the guy who gets shit done. Um, I, I'm, I'm how just, does that go down in your family? Well, I did get a text from my mother saying that maybe swearing once in public was acceptable, but swearing twice made it look like it was a bit of a habit. Um, so um, I, uh, I think we should all listen to our mothers. And did you, did you swear the moment when you saw that Boris was going to prorogue Parliament um, in defiance of your fight them on the beaches speech during your leadership speech? Did you think, well, the, the, F, F me, what are we doing? No, the proper, look, the proposition was different, right? The prop, the, what I was arguing very emphatically against was the idea that you prorogue Parliament until the 1st of November, you go for no deal, don't try to do a deal, just get, uh, just get through it that way. Um, and uh, I argued that instead it's important for Parliament to have its uh, time to sit, and Parliament has sat. And so the, the proposal that was eventually quashed by the Supreme Court was essentially to have the party conferences n without Parliament sitting, which has been the case for, you know, decades. Um, and, it own, and also then the Prime Minister to be able to have his Queen's Speech. And I'm very excited about the Queen's Speech because there's going to be loads of stuff about the health service in the Queen's we'll Speech. We'll come on to that. And, and, and lots of progressive reform. So I want us to get to a Queen's Speech. I don't know if we're going to have one, but I want us to have a Queen's Speech because I'm very excited about the legislative proposal that we're going to propose. Now, one of your former colleagues, Amber Rudd, felt that that prorogation was just a step too far, that together with the withdrawing of the whip from some of your colleagues. Um, is there anything that would get Matt Hancock to quit the cabinet? Uh, yes. What? I'm not going to say. <laughs> I'm not into making threats. What sort of thing? What I'm principle not. would you be prepared to I'm not gonna say. lay down your I'm not going to say. I think that you know that's the criticism, that Matt Hancock is flipped, he's not as moderate as he was in leadership, he's doing anything just to stay with Boris, always interested in the chancellorship. Look, my support for the Prime Minister is based on total agreement that we need to get Brexit done. I. I think I coined that phrase in the leadership debate. Get Brexit done. I said we've got to get we've got to we've got to get Brexit done. We've got to get on with it, right? Get it done. Um, we we've got to support the public services, especially the NHS, right? And we've got to get the country moving forward. And crucially, that we've got to deliver Brexit. I had this phrase in the leadership battle when I said we must deliver Brexit, not be defined by Brexit. And uh, do you remember that? And that I said it a lot. <laughs> Your own message. It was my message. I know. Um, and um, and that is the that is the strategy of the government. It is to deliver Brexit, but not be defined by Brexit by delivering on the priorities, the domestic priorities, especially health, education, and the police. And if you look at the banners around here, um, you know the, the the strategy of the government getting Brexit done which we absolutely need to do, and I think the vast majority of the people in the country want us to get it done. I think it's better to do that with a deal. I emphatically think it's best done uh, with a deal, and I think that the deal is eminently doable because it's in the interests of both sides. Um, and at the same time, we mustn't be defined just by being the Brexit party. We are also the party that looks out for the interests of the British people. Strong economy, public services, uh, extra police on the streets, proud and looking outward and uh, gregarious around the world and self-confident at home. And now there's an enormous amount of noise in politics at the moment and I regret some of that noise. Um, but the best way, the Prime Minister is completely right on this, the best way to just try to take down the tone of some of the language in politics and take some of the vitriol out of the debate is to deliver Brexit and then as all work together on the project of how do we make this country the best place to live in in the, in the second half of the 21st century. Now, as you've said, Brexit is obviously a huge issue for the NHS in terms of no deal planning. Um, you've been stockpiling, you know, I think you famously said you're the largest um, buyer of fridges anywhere in the world at the moment. Um, 
The NAO, though, the other day, only last week, said that medicines coming into Britain after a no-deal Brexit could be significantly delayed. Um, can you confidently say there'll be no significant drugs or medicines shortages in a no-deal? I, I can confidently say that we have the plans in place to ensure that there's no um, that there's no significant shortages that's in the event of a no the same deal Brexit. The plans in place. Well, that's and I use that language for a very specific reason, which is that there are shortages of the availability of drugs all of the time yeah. in the NHS. We have two. We have twelve thousand three hundred um, um, licensed prescription drugs in the UK. Um, and there are always shortages of some of them, normally a handful. For instance, this summer you might have seen the news of shortages of HRT drugs. Yeah. That was because uh, there was problems in a factory in Germany. Um, there's, there was a shortage of EpiPens because of a, last year because of a problem with a factory in China. Um, this is, I have a team in the department who are constantly managing these shortages. Um, so people ask me to guarantee that we'll, absolutely everything will always be there. The challenge is that I can't do that outside of the Brexit, uh, Brexit scenario. I can't, do, I can't guarantee you that tomorrow there won't be a shortage of a drug. In fact, there likely will be of one of the 12,500 just under uh, drugs that we have. And, and I you, won't can use language that isn't worse by a no-deal Brexit? Well, it, it, um, I can guarantee that we've got the plans in, the pla in place to deal with it. So, for instance, one of the things the NRO said is, we can't guarantee that there will be immediate flow on day one. But that's why we've got the stockpiles. And we've got six weeks of stockpiles in place. Um, and um, then they said, in some areas, we can't confirm exactly how big the stockpiles are, and they are but we have a plan for ensuring that those, stock those will be in place or that other biosimilar uh, uh, medicines will be available. That is, they might be a different brand, but they do exactly the same thing, or it might be a different size of tablet uh, it, within the same brand. Technically, that would be a shortage of that medicine. If you couldn't get the 100 mil right. uh, version, but you could get the 50 mil version, medically it makes no difference because you can take two of the 50 mil. So it, it is a very complicated thing. Uh, we undoubtedly know more about the pharmaceutical supply chain at this point in time than at any time in history. Uh, and, um, the, uh, and, and, uh, but I won't use words that are stronger than the truth. The truth is we have the plans in place to ensure that everybody gets the medicines that they need. It involves flow, it invo as in at the border. It involves aircraft to bring in the short shelf life drugs, which we've got chartered. Um, well, uh, we're not chartering them directly, but we've got a contract to do that. Um, and it involves um, stockpiles. Um, but you can't stockpile realistically for a very long delay. But anyway, all of this is on the presumption then that in the event of a no deal, we would be, um, you know, the worst case scenario is that everything would snarl up. But the problem is that um, um, that, 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 that would obviously be difficult for us. It would be difficult for Ireland because many of their drugs come through the UK. And there, is there would be diplomacy to sort this out as well as the logistical arrangements. But I want to have that belt and braces, and, uh, and, and we will. Now, talking of the politics of the NHS, um, what about the idea that you, your scrapping of the nursing midwifery bursary was basically a political error? And the one that you could do something to try and ameliorate. Are you, are you looking at the idea of maybe for some categories? Yes, of yes. That you I saw this. Did you pick this up from The Guardian this weekend? No. Um, I, there was, the Guardian ran a story this weekend saying Matt Hancock is considering something to go in the place of the nursing bursary. Well, I mean, I've been talking about this for months. You talked to me about it in the summer. Right. But I just so want the to, Guardian catching up with I, our earlier I, interview. I, I want to press you on what, where that is now. How, how firm are those plans? Uh, well, we're working on what we call the NHS People Plan. Um, and um, the thing is that um, there was an bursary for people going into nursing. We need more nurses. Um, but the current restriction on training nurses is actually paying for training places. It's training for the paying for the clinical uh, placements. Um, and we have more applicants than we have places, even without the bursary being in place. And the number of applicants is going up. So in order to expand the number of nurses coming through training, you actually need to put the money into training places rather than into a bursary. Having said that, there are, there are, there are some areas, particularly people coming to nursing um, uh, through what's called the mature route, i.e. as a second career, um, where there has been a particular impact of the removal of the 
the bursary. And so we are, yes, looking at alternatives for ways of doing it. Now, what, uh, the next question might be where, well, I mean, you can ask me another question, but, the, um, but it might be where, when are you going to do this? Yes, and when are you going to do this? Very, very good. Uh, the, um, uh, the, 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 we're, going to ha we're going to publish um, in the autumn what's called the People Plan, because, um, uh, because ultimately the NHS is a collection of um, buildings, like the 40 new hospitals, uh, and, uh, hospital, did I mention hospital projects? Uh, no, 40 new hospitals. 40 new hospitals um, that are being built um, as a result of today's announcement um, of um, of buying things like medicines. But 70% of the NHS budget goes on people. And in the past, I think too much of the focus within the NHS has been on individual. Um, has been on just the numbers, the pure numbers of people. The numbers are important and they're expanding in almost every area. We're recruiting more. But so too is the culture of how people work together in the NHS, which if you've, be, if you've not actually worked in the NHS, I was astonished to find this when I became Health Secretary. It should be an amazing place to work, every part of it, because the, the mission is so great. Um, but often the morale is low, there's a bullying culture in far too many parts of the NHS. O often it is far less than the sum of its parts. And we need to change the culture, and this is really what the People Plan will all be focused on. Isn't one of the reasons that morale is low is that there are staff shortages? Yes, there's, there's a, there is a degree of circularity to it, but that's not the only reason, and there's many, many things that we can do about it. Um, you mentioned the Queen's Speech, and I wouldn't dream of asking you to tell me what's in the Queen's Speech for, for health, but... Um, in general terms, you've talked about uh, reversing or at least ameliorating some of the Andrew Lansley reforms that they went too far and had uh, unintended consequences, as you might put it, but others would say were perfectly foreseeable. Um, when it comes to tendering, are you looking at how to change some of those rules that yes. you inherited? Yes. And what are you particularly looking at? Well, the um, uh, I, I obviously can't and won't disclose what Her Majesty might say if there's a Queen's speech, um, and hopefully when there's a Queen's speech. Um, but uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg has helpfully already said that there will be an NHS bill in it. Um, and, um, and, and it was very helpful for me. And um, Simon Stevens, uh, the uh, head of NHS England, ha actually last week on Thursday published proposals for what should be in an NHS bill should there be an NHS bill in the Queen's speech. So you might be able to put the dots together. Um, there's a, um, and, and this includes looking at how the NHS tenders. You know, I want the NHS to be able to tender widely, but often there's one obvious supplier and they still have to go through the whole bureaucratic rigmarole. And, and, and it's very expensive paying a lot of lawyers um, a lot of this bureaucracy is unnecessary, uh, and these proposals will get rid of it. Interesting. Um, for our A&E waiting target, are you looking at changing that significantly? Well, we are piloting changes, yeah. So here's something where parties work across the aisle. Um, the Labour agree with this approach. Um, the problem with the four-hour target in A&E, I don't know how many of you have been to A&E recently? Um, I went as a visitor, not as a um, participant. Um, so the A&E target is four hours until you get either sent home or admitted into hospital. It's not four hours until you see somebody. But the fact that there's a four-hour target means that at three hours 45, lots of hospitals are incentivized um, either to admit people or to send them home, when clinically it might be better to hold them a little bit longer and then they might not need to be admitted at all. Um, and the figures bear out that there's a huge spike in the number of people who are admitted at 3 hours 45 to 4 hours. Um, and um, it, it, that can't possibly be all clinically justified. So there's, a, there's strange um, behavioural consequences of having this target. It, doesn't, it isn't clinically relevant these days. And far more people now in A&E are treated um, uh, on the day rather than admitted to staying overnight. And, and so we are going to, we are looking at changing that. There's 14 hospitals around the country where that's being, those changes are being piloted. Um, and, um, and so we are moving, um, we are looking to move to a more clinically um, based uh, uh, new measure. Um, the, the clinicians are leading this work and it's, um, and, and I think it'll improve the performance of A&Es because it'll mean that more people will, will 
um, be able to get the same day treatment. Um, it means that more people, when they turn up at the front desk, who don't need to be in an A&E but need to see their GP, will be sent to see their GP. And, the, and the tar some of the targets we're looking at, for instance, are time to see the first clinician, because this really matters. From the time you turn up at the front door, when do you first see a doctor or a nurse? Which is, on average, 15 minutes, which is far better than the four hours that people think about. And then if people with really serious conditions, heart attack, stroke, um, we'll have a one-hour target to be properly treated, um, and that is life-saving, as opposed to somebody with a stroke being measured exactly the same as somebody with a, uh, an ingrown toenail. So there's a, um, I, I, I have full respect for the pain that people with ingrown toenails feel, of course, um, but uh, it's not as serious as a stroke. Yeah. So, that, so we, um, I mean, I have to say that, don't I? But, um, the, um, uh, the, but the, the, that is the purpose of the, of that review, and it's being done in a collaborative way, led by the clinicians with cross-party support. So that's the sort of politics that is changing things for the better. Um, can I ask you a little bit about the wider sort of modernising agenda that you, you mm. were pushing this summer? Um, the Conservatives really have a problem with attracting young women, don't you? I mean, how severe is that problem? Well, in terms of votes, I mean, not in terms of <laughs> candidates. <laughs> Or your individual. Uh, anyway, we'll leave that. <laughs> anyway, it's really great. Are there any questions from the floor? The, um, look, we look, the Conservative Party to survive and thrive needs to attract younger voters. Um, and I think you might have been referring to polling that was out this summer, earlier in the summer, saying that only 8% of women under the age of 25 will vote Conservative. Exactly. Of course we've got tiny. to uh, do tiny. something about it. And the way you do something about it is about um, having a... Um, a, a positive offer um, for what we can do to help people. Um, and so, for instance, amongst this age group, as everybody knows, the environment is particularly important. And I think, I think protecting the environment and passing it on to the next generation is, a, again, a deep conservative instinct and principle. Uh, and uh, so, yes, we've got to do a lot in that space. But doesn't the PM in particular have a women problem? There's been a poll that showed, for example, for example, there's a poll, when should Boris resign? Men, only 49%. It's just under half. Women, much, much higher. Rubbish. This is a nation poll. Right. Now, what, what, how do you explain that? Well, I haven't seen that poll, but I haven't seen any particular evidence in that space. I, I, but I would say that as, you know, part, uh, can, for us to thrive, we need to appeal to people who aren't yet voting conservative and that's you know and, and they then you have to go and look for um, those people who you can persuade and particularly particularly people who share our values but don't think that we're the right party to vote for um, and um, so for instance this is also true amongst um, uh, British ethnic minority uh, voters often feel that often if you ask them about values, about um, enterprise and support for the family, uh, and support for a strong economy and to fund our public services, they will be very, very strongly aligned but then not see Conservatives as the party to vote for. Uh, I think that breaking down those sorts of barriers is incredibly important for our long-term health. George Osborne this summer revealed that he'd had um, a WhatsApp group created called Make Hancock Great Again. Um, I should get a cap. <laughs> um, will you ever run again for Tory leader? Oh, I don't know. Honestly, we've got a brilliant leader who's doing a great job. Well, you would know, wouldn't you? Hey? Why not run it out now? Just say that's it, my one shot, you know. <laughs> I'll take you, that silence has been revealing. Okay, let's open it up to questions from the audience. Um, this chap here. Do we need a microphone? Or yeah, the microphone. Hi, Peter Walker from the, uh, from the Guardian. Uh, Matt, you... I'm really sorry about the comment from the guard about the Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> we, we generally hear worse at both Labour and Tory conferences. <laughs> yes. Um, you said that John Ashworth and Labour were saying that they uh, oppose some of the spending. Yeah. Of, uh, and, uh, yeah. But that's not actually true. Yes, they, it is. Well, I just texted John Ashworth to us and he says it's not. Right, well, he's great. A U-turn from Labour. No, no, I, welcome, <laughs> I welcome his support. They are basically saying that, that, that they're just not sure where the funding will come from. Um, right. Well, look, I've got a couple of things you know, to say. As, as in your, your funding will come yeah. from. But, but the main question that I've got yeah. is, is there any mental health 
provision yes. as part of this? And what percentage? Can you clarify how much there is? Yes, I don't have a percentage for you, uh, but um, there is a. Uh, we all we are the support for mental health. We have a nine hundred and seventy-five million pound package for community mental health services as well as part of this. Um, program. I am absolutely determined to put mental health on a par with physical health um, uh, in terms of how the NHS treats it and how we as a society treat it. And so I'm glad that there's a package for mental health support as well. And um, if I just come to this point about John Ashworth, he's reading tweets. Um, I'm reading his. It, I, I'm reading his Twitter feed, which um, he has attacked um, the Leicester project. Um, saying it's provoked local opposition. And so, you know, if he wants to accept that the Labour Party agree with our plans for 40 new hospitals, that would be great. And if the Labour Party instead want to say, um, you're, you're, you know, we can't be sure we're going to fund these uh, if we come into office, because we will, because we've committed and given them the go-ahead today, and if they want to commit to that, then I'd be welcome. And if we could, if we could clear that up through your texting... Uh, Mr. Ashworth, <laughs> at this fringe, well then I think that all the voters in those, uh, all the, all the, actually all the patients, more importantly, in those cities and towns that are that have uh, projects in the second phase, who are getting the seed funding, development money now, um, like in uh, in Cambridge um, and. Um, uh, and elsewhere across the country in um, Derriford. I mean, Derriford Hospital in um, Plymouth. I did a night shift there. It's so... It, de it needs funding. But if we gave them the money today, then they wouldn't be able to spend it um, if we gave them it immediately to spend this next financial year because they need to do the development of the plan. But I am committed, and we as a government are committed, and have given today given the go-ahead to the... Uh, the, the hospitals in phase two, like Derriford, uh, like Addenbrooke's, like the North Manchester I was at this morning. Um, and um, if John Ashworth wants to say that he will support and give the go-ahead should the Labour Party uh, be in government, then that would be terrific. But so far I haven't heard that. All I've heard is sniping and complaints from the sidelines. And, and the crucial thing is that about the Labour Party is this. An election will come, I hope, and I hope soon. And in that election, um, the Labour Party know that they cannot win and they cannot govern without having to have the support of the SNP and the Lib Dems. And frankly, a vote for anybody else is a vote to put Jeremy Corbyn having to be supported by a ragbag of other people in, uh, in office. And I think that this uncertainty that Labour have created today about whether they support 40 new hospitals for our health service is another good reason why everybody should vote Conservative. Hey, that surprises me. <laughs> <laughs> this chap in the front here. Um, my name's Ken Pollock, Worcestershire County Council. Mm. Um, sorry, uh, two years ago, your predecessor in this building said that he wanted to move the National Health Service away from the blame culture to a learning yes. culture. You talk about the bullying culture. <laughs> yes. I think you must have read Matthew Sayers book, Black Box Thinking. I'm sure you have. How is that project getting on? Yes. And, and can you see it actually changing the culture very much? Yes, it's incredibly important that we make this cultural change. I totally agree with you. Uh, and um, that the that people are confident when there's a problem to speak out. Um, and, to, and, and that people on the front line in the NHS are always looking to improve their area. Um, and this is true in the best hospitals in the country, but just not everywhere. Uh, and I really uh, look forward to the day when the NHS has this sort of this go this this attitude that we work as a team. When something goes wrong, that is not regarded as a moral error of the staff involved. It is regarded as something that has to be learnt from, because you know medicine is a is a is is risky and things do go wrong. Um, and um, and also when things go right. People should get together and learn from what went right. I think there has been good progress in the last few years, but there's still further progress to go. Thank you. Uh, time for one final one. A woman in the audience. Uh, there's a woman there. Uh, <laughs> Hi, Matt. It's Kate Ferguson from The Sun. Um, Paul asked you a little bit earlier about the women problem that the Tory party has. Do you think Boris Johnson has questions to answer about squeezing a female journalist's thigh? And do you think stories like that help your position with female voters? No, I mean the, the thing about um, Boris is that you know we are firstly 
we're concentrating on the things that people really want us to deliver on. And of course, there's always uh, lots of other stories in um, in, in papers, um, but um, uh, we're concentrating on the things that are real priorities. And the other thing I'd say is that you know, Boris has never made a um, never lectured other people about their uh, private lives, uh, and I think that we should concentrate on you know, delivering on uh, on what we are in politics for, which in my view is to is to serve the citizens of this country. Great. Oh, thank you. I'm really sorry, but we've run out of time, so I'd like to thank you for coming. I'd like to thank Matt for his, giving us an hour of his time. Thanks very much. And I'd like to thank John Ashworth for his unexpected appearance at this party. <laughs> <laughs>